Anthony Sweat has easily become one of my favorite BYU professors to interview. He's been on the podcast several times, and he also has a remarkable presentation about ambiguity of doctrine in our Questioning Saints virtual library. He discusses healthy and unhealthy ways we approach doctrine, how to help others reconcile doctrine they find difficult to believe, especially when we don't know much about it. You can watch Professor Sweat's entire interview in the Questioning Saints library by going to leadingsaints.org 14. This will give you access for 14 days at no cost to watch this presentation. You'll be better prepared as a leader when you do. I would be rude if I didn't take the time to explain to the newer listeners what Leading Saints is. Here goes. Leading Saints is an organization that started as a hobby blog in 2010 and then really caught some traction in 2014 when the podcast started. We talk about all things leadership in the context of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We aren't owned by the church, but we have a great relationship with them and always aim to be faith-promoting, even though we talk about the tough topics. My name is Kurt Frankham. I'm generally the voice you hear as the host of the podcast. I've tried to get other hosts, but people demand my smooth tone, and I really enjoy it. Check out LeadingSaints.org to really get into the weeds of what Leading Saints is and learn all about our mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Tom Roberts, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. How are you? Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, (laughs) oh, I've looked forward to this for a long time. Oh, great. Now, man, I'm trying to just wrap my head around your story and your background and whatnot. And uh, I don't want to, I could probably spend the whole episode trying to piece that all together. But you were, in short, you converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 2017. But you have a long familiarity with the church. How would you explain that? Okay. My familiarity with the church goes back to the 1960s, listening to Temple Square's messages from Hugh Nibley, uh, Sterling W. Sill, and uh, writing uh, Sterling letters and receiving an autographed copy of his book, Keys to the Kingdom. Well, I was going to Mutual as a 16-year-old in the LDS church. And uh, And where was this at? This was at the Renton Second Ward in Washington State. And uh, I just loved okay. it there, and they loved me, and oh, we had such great relationships in that ward. But I was studying so many different religious traditions and faiths as a teenager that I had so many questions that a lot of laity didn't really know how to answer them well. So I had to Mm -hmm. pursue... Like when you talked with uh, church leaders and and bishops and things? Exactly. And uh, so I didn't know what to do with Joseph Smith as I went through the Sabbatarian church traditions that promoted the seventh day as Saturday. I was very convinced that there was a great deal of truth there. And... I ended up ultimately in Armstrong's Radio Church of God, who promoted the plain truth, and they believed that man could become God. They believed in theosis, as I did. They rejected original sin and had certain LDS tenets 
And uh, I never forgot those. And I thought to myself, but I don't know what to do with Joseph Smith. And mm-hmm. later, as I and, and let me ask you, did you have did you have a specific religious background that you were, you were raised in? More general Protestant orientation, but no, I was oh, okay. on my own for the most part. If my family went to church twice a year, they were doing well, Kurt. So I was left on my own, more or less. And when I started reading academic commentaries as a young person, my folks always said, well, if you want all that, why don't you go to seminary? You know, why are you so interested in this? Because they wanted me to use my voice in singing and broadcasting. And where was all this religiosity coming from? Well, I was challenged from birth and wasn't supposed to live as a premature baby. And so I always had lots of why questions. My wife calls me Kurt, mm. a why person, makes me a systematic theologian, right? You know, to have all these <laughs> yeah. why questions out there. And so as I begin to dispel a lot of Protestant doctrines because I couldn't see them in the text, I never could really answer a lot of the LDS claims, you know, thought, oh, I love the people. And as I saw LDS scholarship growing with farms, Fair Mormon, the Maxwell Institute, I thought, now they're talking my language. I can resonate with these papers. And as I grew as a Catholic priest, I would see in the interpreter's Bible dictionary articles from Egyptian Christianity about preexistence. I began to read the writings of F.C. Cook in the Anglican tradition, and he also believed in preexistence. And I would scratch my head mm-hmm. and go, well, this isn't just a product of the LDS traditions, you know? And mm-hmm. so, okay, let's, yeah. let's, let's file this one over here in file 13 and see what happens. Then as I grew, yeah. the Orthodox Church believes that man could become God, and I never lost that view of theosis. And so, okay, well, the Eastern Church, fathers taught it, Origen taught it, Athanasius taught it. And I began to say, now, wait a minute, maybe Smith wasn't so far off in the first place, you know. And then uh, when I began to see writings from Tertullian, that there were three levels of God's kingdom, and I began to say in my prayer life, what's going on here? Yes, I believe all those things. Why am I sounding more like Joseph Smith all the time? You know, and I saw Joseph Smith. <laughs> so so let me let me ask you, Tom, real quick. Like, sure. Were you so you were an ordained you were an ordained Catholic priest? Yes, absolutely. I still have the holy orders, the robes, the cassocks, and uh, when I began to talk to Jeff Holland, I would come to Salt Lake and be invited to his office and come in as a Catholic priest. And we were both shocked on how many items <laughs> we agreed on. That was really something. So 
I begin to not be able to push this down anymore. So when I'd lecture at BYU for Alonzo Gaskell and uh, present at the Mormon Society, you know, for history and uh, religion and get to know Dr. Peterson and all the academics, we had a lot of love and respect for each other. And uh, so I asked Ben Huff, I said, now, I believe there's been a lot of growth and changes in Christianity since 1830. And he said, well, Tom, most LDS scholars agree with you that there is a broader application to restoration truth than one corporation or group of people can muster. And so we believe the Spirit of God's really stirring things up, you know. And I said, well, this needs to be utilized ministerially in a way to lead people to the restoration, but without abandoning the truths that helped them migrate in the first place. And they said, well, mm-hmm. you know, there are a few others like yourself who have come in, Pastor Reddy, and of course, there's a Book of Mormon believer who's one of my buddies, who's a Baptist preacher, you know, out there who preaches from the Book of Mormon and the Bible. So there are some interesting things going on out there. Three sisters, and this was reported in the Ensign many years ago, came into the LDS church with THD degrees and said to the church leaders, you do not know what you are setting on. That is truth and, you know, valuable. So I was listening to all of this and uh, talking to LDS scholars and comparing notes and I began to really believe that many of the claims of Joseph Smith were true, and I knew where to place him in my thinking as a mystic as I read Rough Stone Rolling by Bushman. And then I began Mm -hmm. to look at Joseph and say, prophet, seer, and revelator. Well, that's a mystical prophet like John or... Ezekiel, Isaiah, and I thought, Lord, I'm getting it. I'm beginning to piece all of this together. Then as I spoke to LDS mystics, taught at Sunstone, and, you know, began to reach out to many people uh, who I thought were really getting into some good areas on women's studies and other things, I found my community with LDS people. And while the things I talk about, you don't really hear much in sacrament about them, I find there is a hunger from certain saints to go down some of these roads. And the LDS church has not had an emphasis on systematic or historical theology. So there isn't the understanding I would like to see in our context and where we would function in the light of Christendom mm-hmm. in general. I think there needs to be a lot of work, you know, in those areas. And I would like to help. With yeah. That. So 
you know, it sounds like the intellectual conversion and spiritual conversion was began even as a youth and little by little sort of grew. And, and uh, was there a moment in 2017 that sort of uh, spilled over into you actually uh, wanting to be baptized? Yes, my wife and I read and took a course from the Community of Christ on the Doctrine and Covenants. And I told Barbara, I'm going to really study this hard. And I said, I'm going to disprove it if possible in my thinking. So I can put Joseph Smith to bed once and for all. Well, we came out. It was like he he haunted you for years. He did. did. He's good at that. What happened was we were driving home one day after I was preaching in the community of Christ. We had some wonderful relationships there. And this was while our activities at BYU were going on. And anyway, I said, Barbara, to my beloved wife, I agree with what is in this document, this corpus of revelations. And I thought, boy, I'm really pushing it here. And she said to me, no, honey, I do too. And uh, that was the beginning of we either need to fix it with the community of Christ and chart where we're going, or I need to continuously keep talking to church leaders and let's be a part of the flowering of Mormonism. And so that's where our hearts have been ever since. So why not the Community of Christ Church? Why did you, why the, uh, you know, the Brighamites, I guess you could say. <laughs> well, you know, they're out there too. And, and many of them only believe in the Book of Mormon, like the Bickertonites, you know. And then some of them have rejected mm-hmm. Book of Mormon. Some of them have gone to a very liberal Christianity. And I love them so much and appreciate their growth and spend a lot of time talking to some of their leaders and reading restoration studies, which is kind of their migration from where they were as the RLDS church to where they are now as the community of Christ. And when I wrote my doctoral dissertation on from sacral kingship to sacred marriage for the Orthodox, I quoted a lot of LDS scholars, Hugh Nibley and Sorensen and Jack Welch, a lot of Temple Studies material. Because what I had found in Temple Studies was that these particular tenets of faith that are in the LDS temples and ancient temples were in Orthodox liturgy, they're in Catholic liturgy, they're in the Sistine Chapel's pictorial type of inscriptions on the roof of that great chapel. You can see most of the LDS endowments. And as a priest, an academic, I couldn't put this down. And then when Dr. Ricks came out with his wonderful article, I've been following his career since he was on the Dead Sea Scroll International Community. And he said the Catholic Mass was in the LDS Temple. And I thought, man, that fits my dissertation perfectly from sacral kingship to sacred marriage. And I began to uh, 
pushed this through my academic affairs committee. They wanted me to take all the LDS scholars out of the bibliography. And I said, nothing doing. And so I went through in my oral examination and explained to the Orthodox that these were well-credentialed men and that they knew what they were talking about. And I defended the documentation of the 22 enthronement rites that Unibly wrote about in his book on the Egyptian endowment ceremony. And uh, so they had to leave it in. I stuck my nose out there in front of the Orthodox, and they let me keep the LDS scholars in my doctoral dissertation. So yes, why did we come to the LDS Church because of the truth that we believe is incorporated in the temple ceremony. Wow. Wow, that's not the typical conversion point for a lot of people. No, I can see sure. just with your background how that could be powerful. But, you know, the more background you have in things, the more questions you have to answer for yourself. And I think ultimately yeah. we can help the saints appreciate a deeper background and understanding of priesthood and what Joseph Smith in the DNC was trying to restore, because I think so much just gets read in a cultural church context. And uh, the real power of the Restoration isn't always, I think, fathomed or nuanced or thought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on Leading Saints, we were more of a, we talk about concepts of culture more than maybe concepts of theology. You know, sure. Leadership is, has to do a lot with culture. So what was the cultural experience like as far, or the cultural conversion like of coming from your past church experiences and showing up to church on Sunday and just being involved in our programs and, you know, ministering or all these things? What was that like, the good and the bad? Sure. Obviously, there was much good in it, Kurt. There was also many challenges because I was used to doing communion and counseling and, uh, you know, presenting academic, you know, type of papers and being involved with ministry. Well, in the LDS context, the term ministering, you know, as they call it, you know, it's more of a hands-on, go out and do it. It's a paraxis approach. And so trying to retool my bag of uh, talents was really tough. People found my story fascinating, but they didn't understand my story. Now, when I go on and teach the Old Testament with LDS scholars, with the Dream Team, we understood each other yeah. on Dan Witherspoon's podcast. And there was a, a way we could talk to each other. It took the Weezer Church a while to understand me and for me to learn how to reach them. Because at first, some of the leadership thought the story was fascinating, but not everybody trusted me. But, you know, by the time we moved to Big Piney and I had taught gospel doctrine, helped them go through the Old Testament and 
gave them a lot of background that they'd never heard before. And in elders quorum, they heard my testimony very tearfully, and I won their hearts. And then they Mm. began to understand a little better the conversations with Jeff Holland, the conversations with LDS academics, and that there was something that I was trying to give them. And then by the time we moved here to Big Piney, Wyoming, oh, there were tears and people coming by and saying how much they loved us and would miss us. And what we gave to them was very unique. And I used to talk about a few other people like Orthodox priests, Baptist preachers, and others who'd come into the LDS church. And we all had the same challenges, very much so. Mm-hmm. Coming from a trained clergy perspective to that of a lay perspective, it's still challenging. But I think, Kurt, if you come in with the attitude, I'm going to love the saints where they are, and that's all I'm going to ask them to do in return. And let's build the trust. Let's build the relationship. and Let's make our faith exciting. Let's turn new corners. So now I'm giving Friday night firesides here where we're opening up these concepts for the local ward. And once people begin to put their thinking caps on and and maybe do a little bit different method of, of thinking, Instead of just staying inside the box, they begin to love it. They begin to ask questions. They begin to see things they've never seen before. Just like when um, a priest comes into the LDS church, you're seeing things that you never saw before. And uh, as C.K. Chesterton says, if you don't understand your faith, and you don't understand the faith of others, you have no context, you know, to base it. It becomes an assertion rather than understanding how LDS think in light of other Christians, what's similar and what's different. Yeah. Let's sort of jump into the the meat of what we want to talk about. I'm, I'm intrigued by your story. It's hard not to spend several hours just on sure. your, your progress or your progression through the church and whatnot, but I definitely want to keep it focused on on leadership and that experience. And so what were some of the main topics? You know, you reached out to me with a list of some main topics that you identified in the context of leadership in the Latter-day Saint tradition. Where's a good jumping off point for that? I really believe the church should go back to a point that B.H. Roberts raised many years ago in the 1930s. Early Christianity was considered a profession or a vocation, as the Greek has it, in the writings of First and Second Timothy. And he proposed a year-by-year type of apprenticeship that he wanted to see throughout the church all the way to the 70s. And I really believe in the confused world we live in, you know, that's just hard to make sense of that we really need that structure in the church. Like when they used to have several LDS scholars going around and, uh, you know, teaching know your religion. 
Because to me, if you lose knowledge, that is the first step to a state of apostasy. And we really Mm. don't want to lose that because then you lose the understanding of your mission, how to get there, your historicity, what makes an LDS person believe what they do and what drives that. It's more than just following leadership. It's having your own testimony that is more real to you than anything could be, that drives you to learn ministry and to have a passion for truth, a passion for discovery. And when you have that, it rubs off on other people. Or when you just get up during (laughs) testimonial times and just say what everybody expects you to say. You know, to me, like Paul said, it's living water. Yeah. So B.H. Roberts, you mentioned he wanted sort of this mentorship program. This is for like specific leaders, like bishops of, of wards and things Absolutely. like that. Or what, what yeah. more could you yeah. add to that? that context? And he wanted what we call it in Catholicism, catechumen studies. Catechesis means to study, you know, or to contemplate and to grow. And because we don't have a professional in, you know, Latter-day Saint traditions, to bring people to that awareness is still necessary. We still have people going through divorce. We still have people in wards going through alcoholism, women's issues, and, you know, various needs that people need to become specialists in to help people who are ward members, uh, minister to each other more effectively. You know, personal experience is great. Personal revelation wouldn't live without it, especially in an open canon church. But we have to be careful when we minister to other people that we're not giving them just what we think they need. You know, we need to have a lot of savvy in following the Spirit, and the Word. And we may need to acquire some ministry skills. Yeah. So with that lay leadership, like how did B.H. Roberts see that going? Because these are often callings that last just for a few years. And and so that by the time the mentorship would be done or the education, that bishop or whomever that leader would move on, right? Excellent question, Kurt. I believe most of the emphasis was on the 70, but He wanted an apprenticeship that would start from baptism, like we used to have in the early church, and would just take people through their callings and prepare them for their callings. Don't just give them a handbook and, you know, sink or swim, you know. And I've seen that happen in some very high positions in the LDS church. And, you know, as a clergy person, it makes me want to pull my hair out, you know. It's a very frustrating (laughs) Thing to watch, you know, and, yeah, you're not alone, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and uh, people will say, "Well, I was really afraid when I stepped into this position, and I still really don't know what I'm doing, but I trust the Holy Spirit." And uh, I think, well, some definition and education, you know, would be good here to understand the history behind patriarchal blessings in the Gospel of Luke and. Uh, other, you know, types of statements, like, what is a priest? Okay, 
the LDS Church will say, well, it, it's the authority to act in the name of God. Once again, that's what a priest does, you know, well, mm-hmm. back to praxis again, or practice, right? Rather than a priest, if we read the Hebrew in the Old Testament, is one who draws near to God and then, of course, serves, let's put it in LDS terms, the ordinances of the gospel. And so Exodus 18 through Exodus 21, through the Ten Commandments, the issue is creating a holy people through the Jewish holy days in Exodus and Deuteronomy, especially in Exodus and Leviticus 1 through 16. The idea of the priesthood is to create a holy people. And uh, I believe that's what the LDS temple signifies. But we need more ancient priesthood understanding to know what Joseph Smith was indeed restoring that had gone off the track in Babylon spiritually and through, uh, you know, some of the dark ages in Christianity. I do not believe there was total apostasy. Van Unik, the great Dutch scholar, who Hugh really admired, said not all parts of Christianity died during, you know, the Dark Ages. There were 50 million Church of the East martyrs that have special standing in the book of Revelation from the word mataria, that we get one of the words for testimony. Can we say that they didn't love Christ? I'm not prepared to say they weren't spirit-filled when we read books about the missionary enterprise in the Nestorian movements. No, they were very much alive, and uh, they paid dear prices that most of us can't even imagine for the testimony of Jesus. And I think the church, through the readings of Van Unik and other scholars, can balance these views. No doubt when early Christianity lost Judaism, lost a lot of the emphasis on the law and the Torah versus the gospel, there were huge things lost. Uh, Tertullian bears witness of that, and so does Irenaeus especially. And so we have some good partners in crime to establish that there were many key features lost, but the testimony of Jesus the gates of hell never prevailed against that. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what do we what do we do about this? Because even you know, this is, I'm intrigued by this B. H. Roberts history. I didn't really know much about some of these motivations he had, but even since those 1920s, 1930s, there's sort of been this natural call for more training for leaders. But and that's really why I founded Leading Saints and, and sure. wanted to start the conversation, not to give that training, but to at least start talking about these principles in the context of our faith tradition. But, you know, we're not we're not in the business necessarily demanding from the church that they come out with a training you exactly. know, curriculum or, or whatnot. So, so what do we do with it, about it? Well, good curriculum is out there. You know, you can go into LDS bookstores and get wonderful guides through the Old and New Testament and the expanded scriptures of the Restoration, it's there. And uh, I wish Gospel Doctrine teachers would avail themselves 
of that. Remember the work that was uh, towards the understanding of the New Testament by Ogden, Tenney, and other LDS scholars. That used to be recommended reading when the first edition was mm-hmm. out in 1940. Says so right on the imprimatur of the you know church's publishing. This book was published for you know Sunday school teachers and. Gospel doctrine, well, that wasn't used so much then. But yeah, we understand that's what it was for. And uh, today we're lucky if people read an English, you know, version of the KJV Bible. If they do their readings, we're lucky. Mm -hmm. I hear so many misstatements made in Sunday school. I saw a ward I was a part of in total confusion on many issues due to misstatements that were in gospel doctrine. And uh, I brought this problem up to Elder Holland, and he said to me, he said, I'm so glad you're there, Brother Roberts, to try to, you know, help sharpen some of these contexts. But he said, just educate your bishop. Just talk to your bishop, win his heart, and, you know, begin to give firesides and nurture the church in those directions. So I've taken that on as part of my ministry to do that. And I do have the love and support of our current bishop, like I eventually received in Weezer, you know, to help with that. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think we just need to keep talking about it. I think people get frustrated and turn against the church because they're not being fed you know, but see, we can turn that around and take that upon ourselves to grow and mature, right? And to help the saints where we can. And uh, yes, you will get people who come up to you and say, I don't need this. I need to follow the prophet. Well, even the prophet wants you to study and learn and grow and have your own personal revelation. That's what I come back with on that. And yeah. uh, No, the Lord is not going to let us off of this, right? Because uh, where knowledge perishes, so do the people. Joseph Smith said, read the best books. Joseph Smith said, learn from the best scholars. Joseph said, learn from all the truths that God has placed in Christianity. He said that the Catholic Church was the greatest Christian church as far as the historical preservation of knowledge was concerned. So I even think our brother Joseph saw the restoration, especially when you read the DNC uh, section 10, verses 50 through 55. You just cannot walk away from that and say that Joseph just had a corporate view of the restoration. No, it's about truth and who we can learn from to actually bring those truths into the LDS church. And that's the way I read Joseph's ethos, you know, about other Christian churches, that they do bear witnesses of Christ. And he didn't mean a wholesale rejection of this, as Dr. Millette has shown in his wonderful book on Mormon doctrine. It was the concept of God 
that was debated, and the nature of God is what Joseph was trying to say had been mis- misrepresented by traditional Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the effort of, of leadership development begins by acquiring a strong theological foundation of our beliefs and, and tenets. Is that is that what you're saying? When I went through priestly training, I spent years just in spiritual formation from a wonder mm-hmm. tactician in that area by the name of Archbishop Brian Brown. And, uh, you know, that helps put your life in perspective. You do a journal on what you've learned in your life. You look at your life from a spiritual trajectory, and you begin to appraise in your life what worked, what didn't work out so well, what lessons have I had to learn, what am I still struggling with as we move Godward, as my professor, Dr. Dorothy, used to call it. And so you begin to track your life in a spiritual dimension. Then the other thing you do is you try to grow intellectually, and it isn't for intellect's sake. It's to inform your heart through the Holy Spirit. You know, it's to inform your growth. You know, um, it's not to become an academic just so you can lord it over people or, you know, think you're superior to be more uh, correct. It's to make you more astute uh, to the spiritual uh, aspects. And then there's social growth, right? You know, how do I interact with my fellow man? And how do I treat people? Do they know I love them? Am I there for them? Do I have a spirit of reconciliation and ministry towards them? And so all of this goes into uh, the life of a priest, as well as a spiritual type of what we call in Catholicism, it's a type of formation that is very disciplined. So it's called spiritual discipline. And so you learn different aspects of spiritual aptitudes and fortitudes by submitting yourself to those spiritual discipline. Do you read your prayer book? Do you study the prayers of leading saints? Do you apply them in your ministry to life. And all of this goes into the life of a a priest from an ancient point of view. And I believe that there are those who are writing in LDS publications who see some of this and are trying to, you know, broaden the church so we have a better view of the priesthood, uh, spiritual disciplines, as well as what should the intellectual life of a Restoration Christian look like? And man, the sky's the limit. Mm. So what would you say to those that say, hey, listen, Tom, we got, you know, we raised our youth in the seminary program, you know, many serve missions, and then we have the Come Follow Me program that's sort of been, you know, feeding their spiritual hearts for all these years and whatnot. I mean, we're doing it already, Tom. Like, what more do we need? What would you say to that? I'd say they're wonderful starts. They're wonderful institutions and ordinances and practices to begin your journey with. But they're not an end in themselves. 
And so, you know, it's just like how many Catholics go here mass, right, every Sunday, but they don't realize what mm -hmm. they're looking at is the book of Revelation played out liturgically throughout the liturgical year. Most of them have no clue. Hugh Nibley said, we're lucky if we can get 6% of the LDS membership to read deeply. There's what we think the temple ordinances mean, but then there's the historical and theological discussions that few are able to entertain on those things. And I'm one who feels the more you're engaged with it, the more it will mean to you, the deeper those roots go. People are afraid of intellectual pursuits in this anti-intellectual culture. And the Bible is very intellectual, but it's not based alone on intellectualism. There's a deep LDS intellectual tradition that Brian Hoglid and other friends of mine have written about, right? That most saints, because they're not required to know it, like we would be in Catholic priesthood or Protestant uh, ordination clergy circles. So we just simply don't think it's all that necessary or all that important. But when you start talking to people outside the LDS community who are well-schooled and well-studied, oh, then it's absolutely essential. Or they just think, well, you have not a leg to stand on. And so as we interact with other mm -hmm. people, plus meet other people's needs, we need some understanding of, you know, how to serve people more effectively. Yeah. And it seems just this is maybe a, a crude summary of what the church does, what we're trying to accomplish. But even in those youth years, as we're developing youth and young adults, there's sort of this emphasis. We want them to have an, uh, an experience full of feelings, right? Like a, a conversion experience. And, and so, you know, we have the youth conferences, even the missions, and we're sort of hoping they have this moment of a spiritual witness, which, you know, I've had several. Um, sure. I recommend them. They're great. But you're almost saying like, no, we don't just need to stimulate this moment of spiritual overwhelm, but we need to push them deeper into the theology and even more intellectually on a path to help them have a stronger and, foundation and to face mortality. Reality. Yeah. Deeper spiritual reality through understanding there are disciplines there. Now, isn't it interesting? I'm glad you bring that up because what you may need as an 80 year old is not going to be the same spirituality that you need as an eight year old, right? And we keep trying to feed mm -hmm. the church on a very young oriented spirituality because that's where we're more trusting and we're more innocent and we're more given to experiences. In the book, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck, I had discussions with Phil Barlow about this during one of his presentations. And spiritual practitioners now know there's nine different basic steps in spiritual development that we go through throughout our life. And it isn't just one size fits all, right? And we need to understand those. Uh, Tara and Fiona Givens, who I love so much, uh, are definitely aware of this. And Fiona has tried to promote this in women's groups and, you know, lectures and firesides and 
various conferences. And we have people who can help the church understand these things. If we would just turn them loose and support it, the talent's there, Kurt. Mm. But DOS isn't there yet. Yeah. You mentioned you're talking about Joseph Smith and Doctrine and Covenants 50 through 55 and that that Joseph Smith didn't have a corporate view. I forget how you said it, but what do you mean by corporate view? And is that sort of what you see in the modern day structure of the church? Very much so. He says clearly in section 10, he's not here to build a new church as it is, but to bring the truths of the ancient church back into focus. And, oh, I broke down and cried when I first heard Fiona Givens read that and how she said in the early church, it wasn't about joining a church. It was joining Christ that puts you in the church. And I think the LDS church needs to understand that there is a spiritual group of people throughout the world, including LDS Christians, who love Christ, who worship Christ, who are united with Christ, tied to him through prayer and you know, the service that they give. In the days of Joseph Fielding Smith, they used to give recognition to this, and they called them auxiliary ministries. And uh, so the theology is in LDS tradition. It truly is. We just need to recover some of it. Yeah. yeah. So, so what does that look like, like on the ground with a bishop and local leaders, because what I kind of see is there's the the local church, which is the bishops, the stake presidents that have the keys and they're you sure. know, administering the church and the gospel. And then we have the general church, right? Then there's all sort of this passive aggressive tug of war between the two that, man, we don't want to supersede or, you know, quote unquote, get ahead of the brethren. We got the handbooks. I don't want to. I don't want to offend the general church as the local church. So I'm just going to try and appease the general church. But in that is sort of the, this bureaucracy, and like you said, that corporate view of the church. And so, what advice would you give to local leaders who who get what you're saying and the vision that you're you're putting out there? But man, I don't know how to execute that. Right. Well, because right now we have no way of executing it unless it would come mm. from the top and begin to be preached and developed more at conferences and where the local leadership would be empowered to do so. I said to Elder Holland, I said, our people need, if they're going to walk by the Spirit, they need to understand Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 on both sides of the love chapter, that there's advice there in the New Testament about how to grow in your ministry, how to find your gift with the help of local eldership. And Elder Holland said to me, Tom, oh, I would only wish and hope and pray that our leadership would get there and to have that independent Mm. talking about and that foundation. And I said, well, Protestant uh, ministers like Dr. David Jeremiah and others are wonderful teachers in those arenas to help Christians become steadfast in their understanding of ministry. But instead, our conversation tends to be more about, well, can I go give Mrs. Jones cookies or can I? And I'm not against love and charity. But when the church website has erroneous statements on there, like Jesus never ministered to groups. It was always individuals. 
That flies in the face of Matthew 5, verse 1, where he spoke to the multitudes, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, and some of right. th- these statements become very embarrassing for the church because other Christians say, don't they read their Bible? You know, don't they understand some of the very basic things, you know, about ministry and about what it is? And so, yes, we have our internal LDS vocabulary and a way of culturally using terms like ministering in an adjective sense uh, when no one else uses it that way. You are a minister and you are providing ministry, right? Like the office of ministry. And so we are creating some real professional and spiritual gaps between us and other believers. Yeah. So where could a, well, I guess what comes to mind is that the model of our church, the organization of our church, the tradition of we don't only have priesthood authority, but we have priesthood keys to direct and govern that authority is powerful. And it's almost like the the corporate church, even though maybe it should never been that way, has given us the keys, right? Have have given the keys to the local church. True. But the local church doesn't yet feel permission to put the keys in in the ignition and turn the engine over and go, right? right? Right. Because they they don't want to step out of line, right, with it all. And yet, Brother Kurt, it's in the Articles of Faith, isn't it, that we have personal revelation and movement forward. And yeah, the gifts of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul recommends that we grow and walk in, we're a part of early LDS tradition in the Nauvoo Temple. And uh, there were special gifts they think were displayed on Jewish festival days as the saints came west. And we have a marvelous history that could come right out of the Reformation, right into the Restoration. And there's special gifts that other Christians have, like the Pentecostals and the Charismatics really know about growing in the Spirit and having miracles in one's life. and how that happens. Well, that's the emphasis of their ministry, you know. And so, man, I see the restoration as a vehicle that just hasn't even hardly been tried yet in many areas. Mm. Boy, I look at wow. the doctrine of the DNC, and I see them there. I see those teachings from the prophet actually there. But we're always streamlining them to an LDS context instead of the broader context that I think Joseph is writing those concepts in. Because he wants other Christians to come in and be a part of the restoration, and he predicted that would happen if the saints would be faithful. There's a caveat there. Yeah. I sometimes uh, joke, it's probably inappropriate, but I I get that way sometimes where I say if if Walmart was a church, it would look a lot like our church where, you know, again, this corporate feeling and we sort of wear it as a badge of honor, right? That you can just like if you go to, you know, I've been into wall in in a Walmart in Mexico City and I feel like I'm in Taylorsville, Utah, right? Like there's just the same feeling about it. And, you know, with our faith tradition, we sort of use as a badge of honor of like, you can go to Sweden and go to our church, and it's just like a church in in Midvale, Utah. You know, they're going to sing sing the same hymns, but at the same time, that's maybe more evidence of that corporate view church rather than these the local church sort of using the keys to take it in different directions. So, do you kind of see if if this rolled forward and, and leaders had the courage to really 
use those keys and push in a direction that their inspiration is leading them, that we would have quite a unique church in different parts of the world? It would be unstoppable, Brother Kurt, in my heart and mind. Mm. I know people who tell me they want to broaden LDS worship, and they see a need to because they go to other Christian churches and experience that. And of course, they're shot down the minute they come back from a Bible study or a worship service, and they don't see it in conflict to LDS, you Mm -hmm. know, teaching and uh, the core of the heart of the LDS church. And it's the same thing in the Adventist church, where the culture kind of governs, and what she started out to be gets kind of frozen in time. Well, it's the same in the Catholic church, right? I can go anywhere in the world and have the same scripture readings and, you know, liturgical readings and so forth. Isn't that wonderful? But those things are there to bring the body of Christ in general terms to unity with each other if we would use it correctly, right? It's not a corporate unity. It's do we have union from the Holy Spirit with Mm -hmm. each other, right? That's where we want to go. Yeah. I'm just curious, like what, so what, what, if you were sitting in front of a brand new bishop or leaf site president who like is capturing that vision, they're not quite sure they have that permission to do that. And it sort of feels sort of, you know, going rogue a little bit, you know, stepping, yeah. you know, but I want to follow the handbook and we're encouraged that way, but we're also, you know, local adaptation and things like, where would you recommend a leader start to even move forward with this idea? Just exactly what we're doing in Big Piney, have Friday night, Saturday night, meetings, a fireside chapel, or a symposium, and do it in a way that is church-friendly, that I don't like a lot of the podcasts who get on this negativity, you know, and we're going to show every fault in the church there is, right? That's not what this is about. What we want to do is to flower the tradition. We want to mature the tradition. We want to prepare the restoration people, right, for the good things that God has for us, which are so many. Yes, we got a lot of good things going in our direction, but I really believe we would not see the attrition and migration out of the church if we did a better job feeding and challenging, because people would feel, wow, I may not agree with everything that's said, but I'm sure being fed by it, and it sure moves me to come forward. The book of Ephesians mm-hmm. 4 and 5 says, till we all come to the maturity, the unity of our faith, right? So we're struggling for that. We want that unity, maturity, and it takes generations after generations of trying and, you know, failing and doing new things and zig and zag and, you know, going backwards to move forward. You know, it takes a lot of trial and error to get there. And I believe that Apostle Holland and Uchtdorf and others, you know, they want to take the church in a direction, but how do they do it without, you know, offending some and blessing others, right? Creating that that (laughs) unity that, that we can all move and live together with, that's a tough challenge. Yeah, for sure. So 
one thing that we try to accomplish through Leading Saints is I try and find and people recommend individuals who have sort of gone to the borders of the cultural norms. They found the boundary, they found the wall, and then they push on it, right? Sure. This is These aren't people that like completely run off and yeah, they're doing like radical stuff, but they just find the boundary and they push on it. And I love, those are the most downloaded episodes in the Leading Saints catalog because yeah. I think people gain the sense of permission of like, oh, he did that. Maybe I can do something similar. So it's not even like, here's the five-step plan to do it. But whatever context you're in as a leader, I feel like part of leadership is going and finding that boundary and pushing on it and seeing if it falls over or if it pushes back. Why does it push back? What if you push a little harder? And then that's like really how we accomplish the church that you're articulating here that that Joseph Smith articulated early on. Right. Well, I totally agree with that. And we can add one more piece to it. We can say that LDS authors, writers, scholars, and historians, and other leaders have intimated this and advocated this. So the saints know they are within the spirit of the tradition of the LDS church, right? Yeah. Uh, because a lot of people who don't know these things, they're afraid to step out there, right? Because they'll be considered out of faith. They'll be considered out of, uh, you know, step, you know, with the church. I really believe the leadership at the top wants an active, growing LDS church. It would be to their advantage to have that happen on more of a whole sale. Mm -hmm. Um, basis, right? It wouldn't be against them, you know? And I think there's so much fear of persecution from the outside and so much fear that, you know, that has to be arrested. Like Joseph Smith said, we're going to be raised with the knowledge we went into the ground with in the resurrection. And uh, I want the Lord to say to me, Tom, in spite of who you were, you did the very best you could, right? To encourage other people to yeah. grow in the gospel, to be loved, to move forward, um, to learn more scripture, to learn our spiritual heritage and its context. I want the Lord, in spite of all my faults, to overall be pleased. You know, it's like the rabbis in ancient Israel said if you have diversity, and you grow through temptation, and you learn to praise God, that's what God really wants. In other words, what they're saying is God never meant it to be easy, right? When the mm -hmm. fall happened, right? God never looked at us as, you know, such sinful creatures that he's, you know, disgusted to look at us. And, no, we're his children. We're in his image, his, his dumata. We're in his likeness. And like any good father and like the mother of the uh, spiritual nurturing side, you know, our heavenly parents want to see us grow. They, they want to see us become a son and daughter of God and walk in the truest sense of the word. And, you know, if that means shaking things up a bit, then so be it. Yeah. I appreciate your emphasis on the adversity there, because oftentimes it can feel like, you know, the minute you find that boundary and push on it and it pushes back and maybe really hard, oh, and yeah. maybe that's through a stake president coming at you saying, hey, what are you doing here? You can't do that. Or a, a an Area 70 saying, no, 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 we don't do that. Right. Like it's almost that feeling of the general church pushing back. Yes. We 
interpret that adversity as, okay, I've stepped too far. I need to step back. But, and, you know, I know I'm saying like push back even harder, but at least have the conversation, talk through why you're doing it, explain the inspiration you've received through the keys you hold or the keys you, you act under, and then have the conversation to say, let's just try this. Let's get some feedback and move forward. And, and in all the interviews I've done where those those positive deviants, as we frame it, have sort of pushed back on the cultural norms, they have had to have really tough conversations with those that are seen as their authority to understand why they're doing it and hold a hard line. And then and the church grows because of it. Well, an elder of the 70 was at my house one day in Weezer, Idaho. And he was so much for the direction that I advocate, and me and others. I mean, it's not just one of us, right? There's, you know, a whole army of people out there who feel this way from various backgrounds and giftings and so forth. Uh, Jaina Reese is one of them who wants a spiritual renewal and spiritual disciplines to be taught, just like what we talked about earlier in the podcast. There's so many gifted people who want to be turned loose. Just, you know, do your thing, you know, follow the spirit. You know, what's really sad about it is this elder of the 70 said to me, we're not even crawling. He said, I'm with you so much. And Jaina Reese and, and other great people I see in the church, you know, like the Givens and so many others who want to take us in good directions. But, you know, when I push this elder of the 70, well, let's start, you know, doing uh, education seminars. Let's start doing Friday night, uh, you know, firesides. Never happened. Because that fear Mm. of change, you know, just froze it in time. I said, you've got to start preaching about it. You've got to start talking about it. You've got to let the saints know it's okay to think in these terms, and that you're not going to leave them out of the church. You're not going to, you know, come up with a secret agenda, you know, that you're being true to your own calling. And I think that does a lot to, you know, tone the opposition down a bit. When I was in Woods Cross, Utah, and I was asked to go up and give my testimony in my Catholic regalia, They were talking about that months later because I said, we are watching the LDS Church grow. We're watching its interaction with our Roman Catholic and other Catholics. We are watching the theological growth at the time, which was Farms, now the Maxwell Institute. And uh, Saints just stated up, uh, Dan Witherspoon said, boy, they were talking about that testimony much later many months after the event, and we cried together, and and I said, pray for each other as Christians. And I believe in many LDS people, there is the desire to come together with other Christians to worship Christ. I know it's in LDS scholarship and know things that have happened, you know, along those lines. And I really live for the day, you know, when more of that can happen, when we can just praise God and love Him from our various positions. Yeah. What would you say for those who have the concern as far as the, maybe the bad characters in this or who have an, a different agenda, who want to see certain doctrines change, policies change, you know, for for whatever reason, but want to sort of hijack this effort or movement to 
to see the church progress in a way, but how they want. Does that make sense? What what, what would you say true. about those that, that fear that? It's not about me. It's not about what, you know, Monsignor Tom wants from a Catholic side or what I want as a, a church elk or a scholar. It's not about me. It's about how can we follow the Spirit together and sort out the issues and present them to leadership in a loving and a holistic way that suggests, I believe I'm only following the Spirit to help us all be better. I'm not here for self-aggrandizement or to be right or to have all of the answers. No, I'm a struggling saint and priest just like anyone else is, right? And I can only promote where I am and the reasons why. And God and other leaders have to take it from there. And I think that's the spirit we need to uh, promote this, where a lot of people on the peripheral edge of the church feel that leadership's out of touch. It doesn't listen to them, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. You know, the church culture is like shellac. You know, it's just painted in there with a brush. You know, it would take a revolution to change it. When what is needed is a revolution of the heart, not in rebellion or anger. And a lot of people, and I've been extremely disappointed in my Christian walk about much about Christian leadership, you know, that I've seen hurt people, hold them back, make them feel they're in Babylon or spiritual prison. Yes, all that's there. But I'm a free agent of God. How I react to that, Brother Kurt, is up to me. All Mm -hmm. I can do is grow myself and encourage other people to grow and teach and preach and lecture in a way, hopefully they'll find it refreshing, challenging, and enlightening so people will want to move in these directions and to feel they don't have to be against other people to do so. Yeah. Well, Tom, I feel like I've danced all over the general principles and outline that you sent me. Any other concept or uh, principle that you want to make sure we cover? I really believe, like C.K. Chesterton, the great Roman Catholic expositor, said, the more you understand others, the more you understand yourself and have self-understanding. And I believe that's what the saints need to do. And I need to say this with, you know, love and all sincerity. Don't be afraid to think. Don't be afraid to ask questions as if that's anti-faith. It's how you ask the question. It's why the question is important. Is it out to destroy the faith, the pistis of others? Or is it to give a faithful response to God and to just simply also have the humility to understand there are things none of us know yet as we move God. And uh, if we knew everything, we wouldn't need faith or pisteo, how to act on <laughs> faith, right? You know, wouldn't be required. And so we all have things right in our thinking. We all have things that God's working out in our life and thought process. So uh, we can't really approach this from a headstrong, I'm right, or arrogant or erudite point of view. D.L. Moody put it this way, I leak daily, so I need God's refreshment daily. 
And I think if we remember that, that it's not just about our opinions. It's about emulating our Savior in a way that will bring others to grow and to question their faith, but with a faithful response, believing that in time that we will mature and bear more of the image of Christ. And we have eternity to do that, right? So I see it as a dynamic process that in the flesh will never fully, you know, reach that. And I'm glad because it always gives us something to look forward to. Awesome. Well, Tom, any, if if people want to reach out to you or read some of your work or learn just more about uh, what you're thinking about, is there any place you'd send them? Yes. I have a YouTube channel and some of the old lectures are under Father Tom Roberts. Some are under Dr. Tom Roberts. And that you can also go to Dan Witherspoon's website. You can go to the Mormon Historical Society um, religion. You can find some of the lectures I've done on the BYU New Testament uh, commentary series as we develop the commentary on the Book of Romans with Brent Schmidt and my efforts. And so I have lectures on the website on Judaism, early church, the Book of Hebrews, early Judaism. Yeah, so, you know, I'm trying to get my doctoral and master's thesis on eternal marriage from an orthodox perspective published by LDS publishers. And But yeah, if you want to stay in touch, people can contact me through your ministry. I'll be more than happy, right, to reach out to them, talk to them on the telephone or Zoom, or they can find me on the BYU New Testament commentary website. Wonderful. Oh, I was going to say, or they could find me on uh, Sacral Kingship uh, on Facebook and and also academia.edu, where I have 57 articles uh, that scholars react to. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And I hope to bring that and create an LDS presence. Wonderful. Well, Tom, last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time as a leader, both in the, the Catholic Church and other faith traditions that way. Now, you know, you're, you're leading in your own way here in our, as a Latter-day Saint. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I believe we have many new births in our life as we grow from spiritual, you know, plateau to a higher plateau as we go through the nine basic steps of spiritual growth from cradle to grave. And I believe the LDS traditions give us, through the temple, a roadmap to sometimes it's called salvation, but I really believe salvation is in Christ and exaltation is what is provided for as a roadmap in the temple liturgically. And I really believe that has helped me to get a clearer view of progression and how God wants me as a son of God to actually walk and progress in Jesus. And I believe that's what the LDS Church has given me. There's other aspects of it, uh, of course open canon, open revelation, that makes me very excited not to have a locked-in canon or a closed, creeded Christianity, but an open Christ-centeredness that 
allows me to travel and to be very honest about my growth in the spirit and intellectually. And so I'm looking forward to the last two or three steps, you know, in mortality that we take as a preparation for the eternities to come. The end. That's it for this Leading Saints episode. I encourage you to check out some of the most popular episodes of the podcast that we list at the bottom of the show notes. If you haven't listened to all of those, do so now. Remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access the remarkable presentation by Anthony Sweat about ambiguity and doctrine. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.